Hi guys, Harry here. Before we start, I just wanted to tell you a little bit more about the very cool things that we do week in, week out on Patreon for subscribers who we ask to pay $5 a month or $3 for students. So we post ad-free episodes like other people do there, but the rest of what we post is not like what other people do, not like outtakes or a little bit extra, but really full and complete topics with different scholars and the most authoritative people in the country on important topics in the news or just other interesting points. So over the next few weeks, there will be five, count them, five full discussions with authors of new important books. Anne Applebaum, Norm Eisen, John Dean, Jeff Tubin, and David Litt. All of these will be on Patreon. Com. It'll be a great way to find out about the books and also to hear in-depth discussions with the authors. So I urge you to go to patreon.com slash talkingfeds and just see what we have there. You don't even have to subscribe. But once you see the different postings, we think and hope you might be tempted to give it a go. All right. Thanks very much. And now this week's episode. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. By the end of a week in which the virus numbers seem perhaps to be stabilizing, though at horrendous rates that still top the world, it felt as if the wheels might be falling off civil society as a whole. The protests in Portland continued and then proliferated as federal agents stormed in uninvited, ostensibly to safeguard the Portland Post Office, only to engage in a series of over-the-top conduct toward the protesters that inflamed everyone. The weekend announcement that the feds were pulling out restored a relative calm, but the president and attorney general promised to take the head-banging act on the road to other cities governed by Democrats. Bill Barr appeared for long-delayed testimony in the House and left little doubt that under his stewardship, the Department of Justice's primary lookout is the interest of the president and the Republican Party that there is effectively no check on this corruption of purpose and that he stands ready to pull the levers at his disposal to further the president's re-election. And the president, trailing badly in the polls and firmly tagged, despite his best efforts with responsibility for the country's abysmal record with the virus, floated the idea of delaying the election for the first time in the country's history, prompting a swift rebuke from Mitch McConnell and others who have spent the last three years in lockstep with him. What really brought the week crashing down, though, was an economic report at week's end that showed that the U.S. economy contracted in the last quarter at the fastest rate in nearly a century. It was the worst quarter in the economy on record, and the three-month plunge erased nearly five years of growth. With jobless benefits due to expire and no consensus among the two parties for extending them, the economy and the virus were braided together in a miserable lash with no cogent plan from the national government for either of them. And of course, August's arrival means that the fall is accelerating toward us with school reopenings completely uncertain and an election pondering bedlam and new levels of ruthlessness from the president. To take stock of these developments and their social and political implications, we have an awesome panel assembled. 
First, E.J. Dion, appearing for the first time on Talking Feds. He is a Hillman Award-winning Washington Post columnist, as well as a senior Brookings Fellow. He's authored eight books, most recently Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. So good to have you, E.J. Thanks for being here. It is great to be with you. I've been a fan of yours for a long time, so it's very nice to be here. Thank you so much. We're former colleagues until, yes. until recently. Second, Rick Wilson, a political consultant turned political writer. Rick Wilson, a co-founder of the Lincoln Project, is one of the scariest men in America. Though a lifelong Republican, he was an early critic of President Trump, whom he now torments daily with astonishingly effective ads to the endless delight of Democrats and his former political adversaries who used to be scared to death of him. Since leaving politics, he's published two books, Everything Trump Touches Dies, and the recent Running Against the Devil, and launched a terrific twice-a-week podcast, The New Abnormal, which he bills accurately as blunt truth and dark humor for a world in chaos. Rick Wilson, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Harry. I appreciate being back. And finally, we're honored to welcome also a returning guest to Talking Feds, Congressman Jamie Raskin, a member of Congress representing Maryland's 8th District, serves among other committees on the Judiciary Committee, where he's been a piercing intellect in a series of hearings involving the administration. Also a professor of law emeritus at American University's Washington College of Law and the author of dozens of law review articles and several books, including Washington Overruling Democracy, The Supreme Court versus the American People. People. Congressman Jamie Raskin, thank you very much for returning to Talking Feds. It's totally my pleasure, Harry, and I'm delighted to be on with EJ and Rick, too. Great. All right. So let's dive in. Let's let's start toward the end of this tumultuous week with this tweet from the president floating the idea of moving the election. You know, he's been claiming for months, of course, the election's going to be rigged, but this was a giant step farther and suggested the possibility of delay. Let's start here. I was really struck by the quick rebuke of the Republican elite, McConnell, even Pence, Steve Calabresi. How do you account for that? Is it just that it was such a crazy, crazy idea because he's had plenty of them before? Or is it an indication of some daylight opening up generally between him and the Republicans in the Senate especially? I think we should ask the Rick Wilson to comment on his own party. Well, I, I I think that brief little blip came at a point where there's a lot of tension inside the caucus. They all recognize that, that Mitch McConnell may be minority leader next fall. They are all starting to wonder how far they can split off from Trump without triggering either a tweet storm on his part or Fox to go after them. And they're in a tough spot. There are some red lines, apparently, where even Trump's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs approach to the Constitution leads them to at least mildly clutch their pearls, furrow their brows, and say things like, well, no, I think he was joking, or I didn't read it, or I'm late for lunch. <laughs> well, I didn't read it, and I'm late for lunch was the normal answer, but this was actually, uh-uh, we're going to actually have an election. I mean, it was a firm pushback, no? It, it really was, relatively speaking, practically a declaration of war compared to what they've done in the past. Yeah. And I do think, though, that it also comes at a time where McConnell is under extraordinary pressure from his own members because they're off for the weekend now as the $600 a week unemployment benefit has expired. The economy is is in freefall and it has turned ugly. 
Well, right. And so it's an unworkable idea that he can't accomplish on his own or certainly without the House and a deeply unpopular idea. And I think they wanted to nip it in the bud. And what I was hearing from Republicans was that the whole thing was just distraction and diversion from the collapsing economy and the terrible news about the GDP going down one third. Yeah, I mean, the tweet came a whole 15 minutes after so that I can see that hypothesis. My first sense was, my God, this is an outrage. My second sense was he wants us talking about anything except the crash in the GDP number. But I had a third thought, which is we should take it really seriously anyway, because if this goes hand in hand with his talk about a mail ballot election being corrupt. And I think he is setting things up to say, and I guess David Rothkopf made this point, he only wants the election to depend on counted ballots on election day. If those show him ahead, then every mail ballot that comes in after that is declared a fraudulent ballot. And he wants to set things up to cry fraud, even if he loses by a big margin. Now, I think that the Republicans, I I think Rick Wilson's right. I think there are little indications that they are starting to pull away from him. I loved Ben Sass trying to be a right-winger and an anti-Trumper at the same time by criticizing the relief bill by saying that the Trumpers and the Democrats are competing to see who can be the bigger spender. That's a pretty neat trick to turn Trump into a big spending leftist. (laughs) But I think that was an indicator of, you know, Republicans are looking at the same numbers everybody else is and saying, you know, this may be a time to have a little bit of independence from the guy. But I found it heartening because maybe if indeed Trump does try to pretend that a big defeat is actually fraudulent, maybe the Republicans will actually say no for the long run. This, If they don't do it on principle, they'll at least say, no, we can't make this our fight. This is going to hurt us for a long time coming. Yeah, and notice by November 3rd, things might be really different. I mean, let's stick with this for a second, uh, especially the Republicans who are in cycle, who are up for election. They must be pressing on McConnell to say, you got to cut me loose at some point. There's got to be a time where their home interests make them have to try to put some distance between them and the president, no? But if that's right, then... If you think about some election day maneuver, you'll already have had a number of people who are not in lockstep with them and will be probably repelled by the idea. The difficulty is there is still this, what I refer to as FOMT, fear of mean tweets. And those difficulties of being terrified of Donald Trump turning his ire toward you, that shapes the behavior of every Republican elected official in D.C. No matter how loyal they think they are, they know in a hot second he can turn on them. If Lindsey Graham is so nervous that he's trying to stay as far underwater as he can so Donald Trump never gets mad at him. All of these guys are, are driven by that piece of behavioral terror. I mean, he's basically recreated his extremely dysfunctional family on the internet. You know? <laughs> Correct. Exactly. Well, is that so, Rick? Actually, sticking with you, you you said the tweet shows a frightened narcissist afraid of losing. That's pretty punch in and of itself. But can you unpack it a little? Why is that how you read the tweet? Donald Trump has always had a kind of feral cunning when it comes to politics. Yeah, because he knows how to read the mark. He knows how to run a con. And in this case, there's not a lot of daylight for him. He understands his electoral path is narrowing, and so because he's this reckless sort of day trading narcissist, his thought is, I'm going to throw something out there. Mm. 
Maybe if it's close on election day, I'll get a couple of governors on my side or I'll get a couple of state legislative bodies on my side who will cause enough chaos that I can, you know, we'll see what happens. And he'll try to play it out. And because of that, I think he feels trapped. I think he's looking for distractions. I think he knows the economy is sliding down into Great Depression levels or worse. And so the chaos level that he's trying to induce by those things, it's very Trumpish, but it's also certainly something that we're not going to be able to, you, you can't look away from it. First of all, I agree with that. And I think that if you want to descend into nightmare scenarios, you can imagine in some states, Republican legislatures saying, well, we're not sure about these results. We'll just elect a slate Mm -hmm. of Republican electors. Mm -hmm. That would be the extreme mess. But in terms of Republicans distancing themselves from Trump, they've got a problem. They've got what you might call the Dean Heller problem. (laughs) Uh, Dean Heller, the senator from Nevada, where he was sort of embracing Trump, backing away from Trump, embracing Trump. And the problem with all of these vulnerable Republicans is they really do need some votes from voters who are going to vote against Trump if they're to have any chance of winning. Right. But they also need the Trump base to turn out for them. And if they're too aggressive in courting the anti-Trump vote, they're probably going to lose some of the Trump people. As they move toward the Trump people, the middle-of-the-road voters who just can't stand Trump will say, all right, yeah, it's time to elect vote Democratic down the ballot just to get rid of all these guys, which is what the Lincoln Project has come to. So I think if you're a vulnerable Republican, you are in one of the most difficult places anybody's ever been in politics, given the nature of that Trump constituency and your need for it. But I'm just wondering if if Trump has polarized the electorate and the culture so much that there really are very few people left in the middle torn about anything and whether the election really is about just figuring out how to mobilize voters, get them to figure out the rules in the particular state, delivering the vote and then defending the election. It just seems to be very different from prior elections where there is some idea of kind of a mushy middle of voters that people are clamoring for. I agree with that. I mean, there's more straight ticket voting now. If you look at 2016, the presidential race and the Senate races tended to go together. But for some of these folks, particularly people like Collins, Senator Collins in Maine or Cory Gardner, they're going to need some voters who are going to vote against Donald Trump to have a chance to win. That's why I think the odds are Democrats are going to take the Senate because there probably aren't enough of those voters. But their only path to victory is to pick off some Biden voters. Yeah, but it'd be to the extent the electorate now reproduces and reflects the psyche of Donald Trump, either you're with him or you're against him. Yeah. I mean, he really has polarized the entire country. That is the, uh, the beauty of the introduction here, I just want to say, of the Lincoln Project, which now has a counterweight, what should we say, F-O-L-P-C, or you know, the, the new commercial will come out. What, the Jefferson Davis Project? Is right. that what they're calling it? <laughs> I want to stick with this election scenario, what EJ raised, and I think you did obliquely as well, Congressman. I think the overwhelming majority of states do have it in place that ballots that are mailed before the election but received after the election won't be counted. And you add to it the chaos of the post office and the new installation of a Trump partisan at the post office, you have nightmarish possibilities. Is anyone thinking, Congressman, about some kind of legislative solution to this problem? 
Yes. Well, the Republicans are not going to allow us any kind of legislative solution to the problems that they're busily creating in the electoral sphere. I mean, we originally had asked for $4 billion to make available through the Election Assistance Commission to the states for the purposes of updating, modernizing, and going to vote by mail in the middle of the pandemic. And they wanted zero, and we settled at 10% of what we'd asked for, $400 million. And they continue to say, we passed the HEROES Act, and with the remainder of the $3.6 billion in there. And the Republicans continue to say that the states are fine and they don't need any more money. So I don't know they'll be able to do anything. We are going to have definitely a number of hearings about the post office to get on top of that. And some people think that there is going to be a real effort to corrupt the post office, to slow the mails and to create chaos and little electoral Reichstag fires to justify Republican legislatures invoking some problem and saying, oh my God, it's it's such chaos. We're just going to either not send electors or we're going to send them in for Trump. So either it's that or they at least want to create so much fear of problems that people don't vote or, you know, that they're afraid to use the mails. And they say, well, we'll vote on election day. And then we'll start hearing about massive outbreaks and how it's dangerous to go outside right before election day. So they're going to play the con. And our job is to try to bring as much fact and order to the situation as possible. So we will be doing hearings in the oversight committee as soon as we get back in September. Yeah, I'm scared to death of election day voting. I, I have a theory that this whole war on mail ballots is also a bank shot, which is to try to keep people away from mail ballots so that you have long lines, crowded polling places mm-hmm. on election day. Because if you took a couple of places where there was no bad will involved, we'll take Maryland's where Congressman Raskin and I live and D.C., these weren't places trying to suppress the vote. And they had a hellish time dealing with a big mail ballot election because they weren't accustomed to big mail ballot elections. And putting aside any chicanery, just the fact that states are going to be dealing with something like they've never dealt with before Mm -hmm. is going to create problems on election day. Now, I think if there's any good news here is that the three big swing states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, have relatively permissive absentee voter rules, basically make it easier to get absentee ballots. They all have Democratic governors, which could make a difference in their not playing these games. But I think even if you had a well-run election, a lot of states are going to have problems with mail. And I am really worried that we're not going to have enough polling places. The people who used to take care of this for us were elderly people, retired people. My late mother-in-law, a Democrat and her Republican best friend, worked their precinct every year. God bless them. Older people don't want to go to work the polls this time. I'm hoping that High schools and AmeriCorps, if they'll let them do it, and other groups will try to recruit young people so we can open up polling places. Yeah, it's a great point. Mm-hmm. All right. So I think it really remains to be seen. Will he double down on this after the response he got from his own home team, or will he move on to other distractions? For now, though, let's move to the thing that EJ and others posited what actually were the impetus for this crazy tweet of his, which is this indescribably bad economic report that came out at the end of the week. I don't follow it as closely as I should. Let me just start there. You might have expected some bad news, but this is stunningly 
bad news, the worst quarter arguably in history, wiping out nearly five years of growth. Did people anticipate it was going to be that bad? I don't think it was shocking that it was really bad because this reflects the last quarter and we saw what the unemployment rates look like. You've got 20 to 30 million people out of work. So I don't think it was, I think the number was shocking, especially when you annualize it, it goes over 30%. Here's my worry. Michael Strain, a, uh, an economist at the American Enterprise Institute, he's a conservative, but no friend of Trump's, made the point that these numbers that for the last quarter were so bad that you might actually, even if the economy doesn't really recover that much, see some small rebound in the next quarter. And Michael argues that it'll be a fake rebound. But if there's anything with a plus sign in front of it, you know that Donald Trump is going to take it and pretend that we're out of it. To use his favorite word these days, only embers of problems. Now, I don't think voters who are unemployed are going to be persuaded by that. But I think it's going to be very interesting how the awfulness of this number affects the next number we're going to see before the election. But we're going to see it like hours virtually before the election, the end of October, no? Yeah, well, that's in time to spin it and not enough time to really go into it deeply. To counterspin, yeah. Remember the harm that did to McCain in 2008. Because we were in the most chaotic moments of the financial crisis and his campaign was already staggering and he was barely off the mat and then that was the ballgame. I think that that long week where he said he was going to suspend the campaign was coming as you were hearing that Bear was going under. And I I believe the report came. But that was September. That week was killer. I I think that's the week the election was lost. Well, I was just going to say that every week or two, they come up with a a new name because the Republicans will use it kind of half-heartedly for a day or two. So I can't remember if we're still in the great American comeback or we're in transition to greatness, which always (laughs) reminds me of Jonestown. He'll give it some tag, but the public understands that this has been an absolute debacle, that we're on our knees, that he's brought us into the the dungeon as a society and as an economy. And so I just don't see it making much of a difference, whether it's 30% or 25% or 40%. It makes a lot of difference in terms of the lives of the people. But I think that the vast majority of American people have made up their minds that Trump is a complete catastrophe for the republic. And that's why his whole political game plan is just repress the vote, suppress the vote, depress the vote, however he can, and then see what kind of electoral machinations he can come up with and then play a game with pardons to see if he can avoid going to jail. I'd like to Mm -hmm. ask both you, Harry, and Rick what you make of that, because I agree with Congressman Raskin. There were elections in our lifetimes that went down to the wire and were contested all the way. And there were elections where you had a sense early on that voters had made a decision and it would take something enormous to shake them off that decision. And it feels to me, this feels much more like one of those elections where voters came to a judgment already and that it will take something very big to push them back to Trump. Rick, is that your sense of things? Look, I I think in the electoral college map, it's a closer run race than it is on the national picture. And that's the only thing that matters in my world. But I do think that a lot of voters have just washed their hands of him. I think there are a good number of shy Biden voters out there who are former Republicans or Republican-leaning independents. And we're doing a lot to study those folks right now. We're finding ways to identify them appropriately. But I think most Americans 
have made up their mind on Trump. This is a guy who now has approvals in the 30s. It finally broke that 40% barrier. Just the American silos of our politics kept Barack Obama and Donald Trump both from ever quite going below 40 for long. Once in a while, I'd pip down there, but now Trump has broken that barrier and the trend line is headed south. It's not a place where you want to be if you're an incumbent president with a terrible economy, with low approval ratings and, and sky-high wrong direction numbers. So I think the decision's been made by most Americans. I mean, I'm impressed, Rick, and tell me if I'm misreading it, but I'm impressed at how much the Lincoln Republicans are willing to call out all of Donald Trump's enable and collaborators within the Republican Party, because we could be headed for a landslide election that not just ousts Donald Trump, but conceivably destroys the Republican Party. And they certainly deserve to be destroyed for the way that they propped him up. Because my colleagues in Congress, they don't act like a political party that discusses things and debates and so on. They act like a religious cult. I mean, if he wakes up and he says, the dictator of North Korea is our best friend, he's our best friend. And if he wakes up and he says, we're going to nuclear war against the dictator of North Korea, then we're going to nuclear war. And they've suspended all critical thought. I mean, they, they should be selling flowers at Dulles Airport. <laughs> <laughs> Congressman, you're exactly on point. When I wrote Everything Trump Touches Dies in 2017, it had still not quite congealed into the cult we know today. It was still, there was still a little bit of agita out there among Republicans. There was still a little bit of like, eh. And, and now even the ones who whisper about it in private are a much smaller percentage. And the ones who believe in him now are the true believers. They're the what I call the Trump hotties. These are the bomb vest guys. They would do whatever he tells them. And these people, they've built this little media bubble for themselves. They built this little social media bubble for themselves with a complete alternate reality and it has all the definitional characteristics of a cult. He has all the definitional characteristics of a cult leader. And I'm surprised that Don Shinrikyo isn't selling his bathwater to these folks and making them wear robes and waiting for the comet to come. This will be interrupted by an ad for hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Trump's miracle elixir. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, you know, I'll just, I'm no match for political savvy with anybody in the podcast, but to just respond to EJ, A, it certainly does have that feel because the cadre that Rick just recognized, they're never going to go away, but it's just not not enough. It's maybe, what, 60-70% of the people that took them to the narrow victory before, and those other 30%, however you define them, suburban moms seem to be deserting him in droves. But it does feel that way to me. And of course, I've been wrong in the past so often about Trump, but what strikes me as really killing for him is this one-two punch of the economy and the virus. I think a a lot of people had the feeling that they would really take the blow to the economy and to normal life because that's what it would require to beat back the virus. But now here we are having taken an even bigger blow than we might have thought. And the virus is not going away. And as a parent of school children, we are hearing about the whole next school year being interrupted and the like. So we've endured the pain and we're nowhere. And that aspect of it, probably both, but certainly the virus aspect of it rests completely with him. No one's going to think it's anywhere but him. And that, that makes it a referendum on a issue that I think he can't win. 
Well, the, the wild card player here, I think, is Vladimir Putin and Russian sabotage and foreign interference with the election. Oy. What's going to happen in terms of trying to conduct the election under COVID-19? I mean, well, one of the encouraging parts of the response to Trump's tweet was people just saying, look, this is America. We had elections during World War II and we had elections during the Civil War and we had elections in the Depression and we can do this. And the spirit of those voters in Wisconsin was, just inspiring beyond all, all get out the way that they were on the streets for four or five hours with their masks on in bad weather, but they were just determined to vote. And I mean, the Democrats are not fooling around right now. And we've got all these independents. And then I think what Rick has done and what the Lincoln Republicans have done is to validate and legitimate a lot of Republicans. And, and I hear from them in my district coming forward and saying, this is not what I served my country for. This is not what it means to me to be a veteran. And that veterans vote is really, I think, starting to turn against Trump after repeated provocations. I mean, you would have think the stuff with John McCain would have been enough, but the policy betrayals and the stuff with Russia and the, the bounty on the heads of our soldiers in Afghanistan. I mean, that should be determinative of the election alone. Yeah, look, what we call Lincoln Republicans and independent-leaning conservatives, they're still not going to be the majority of the Republican Party in this election. But this is a game of small numbers. And as even, as even Steve Bannon, the poet, sage, and philosopher Steve Bannon said, if the Lincoln Project peels off 3 or 4% of the vote in the swing states, Trump is done. Well, that'd be remarkable, 3 or 4%. Yeah, and we think that that is something we could get to. And it seems to be happening right now. If you look at the polls in the swing states, that started to happen. And you're almost at the point where if you can simply hold those voters, he's done. Trump's only real play in general is to attack the opponent viciously. And you saw that in the Republican primaries, and you certainly saw that with Hillary Clinton. And I think his problem is that, number one, Joe Biden is harder to attack because his sort of base numbers are better than Hillary Clinton's. I happen to like Hillary Clinton, but there were a lot of voters who didn't. And if you looked at voters who disliked both Trump and Clinton, they voted about five to three for Trump. They were the voters who decided the election. In this election, because Trump is an incumbent and has a record and hasn't delivered for a lot of the voters he promised to deliver for, the voters who dislike Biden and Trump are voting for Biden. And unless he can reverse that, then even his patented go after the opponent, whether the stuff is true or not method, that method won't work this time because those voters have said, yeah, I may not like Biden, but Trump is worse. That seems right to me. But also, it's just a referendum on Trump. It's unavoidable. I want to close this out with one quick question more on political results. Jobless benefits expire today, and the Republicans and Democrats, there's a big gap between them. Do the Republicans kind of have to cave on this and quickly? It just seems to me that they're likely to get blamed if it remains like this. And does there not have to be a solution and fast for this problem? If they have any sense of self-preservation left, and that's an open question. If they have any sense of self-preservation left, they're going to realize that 32.5% of Americans last month could not pay their rent or mortgage. And there is a tidal wave of foreclosures and evictions coming. I had a friend who's a hedge fund guy say to me, hey, do you know how many people were foreclosed in the big financial crash in 08-9? I said, no. He goes, 7 million. He says, our model right now is for 20.1 million foreclosures to completion in the next 18 months. 
this is going to be the absolute permanent stain on a party that said we give more of a, a damn about Donald Trump than the American people. I, I agree totally with that. I mean, it has begun this wave of foreclosures, of evictions, of bankruptcies, absolute economic misery. And there are so many state unemployment offices that are dysfunctional and people are already freaked out about that and not being able to feed their kids. The new numbers, I think, put all kinds of pressure on McConnell to come over our way. Our $3 trillion plan is not like a bargaining chip. This is a statement of what the need is in the country. And all the economists are with us on the HEROES Act now. So if they don't cave, then you know they believe their election is really hopeless because what they're saying is they're not going to try to do anything to help anybody. And they just want the economy to be completely in the gutter where when Biden and the Democrats take over. I think the problem is that McConnell can't deliver his own people. When you look at this situation, the only number that Trump has that has been any good at all is on the economy. And one of the reasons he has had that okay economic number is because the Democrats really pumped up the number of the original relief acts, put a lot of money out there, gave a lot of money to unemployed people who spent it quickly because they had to. And we didn't have as awful. I mean, the result is very bad, but it would have been way worse without that stimulus. But a lot of Republicans didn't really like the first bill. It had to be broadened by the Democrats to get it through. And so, uh, you know, I wrote a column this week saying the Republicans really can't govern anymore. And I don't think McConnell can deliver his conferences divided six ways from Sunday on this. And so it's really hard to negotiate with a side that is in complete chaos. Can McConnell deliver enough members on anything to pass something. So I'm I'm more pessimistic about this than my colleagues. I, for the sake of a lot of suffering people, I hope they're right. But I think it's very hard for the Republicans to get to the place where common sense would say they ought to get. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, yeah. more to come. It's time now for our sidebar. And for the first time on Talking Feds, we're changing plans and rebroadcasting a previous sidebar. That's because it's an explainer from several months back that just goes to the heart of current news, namely Trump's proposal to push the election back. So in the explainer in this case is, to our great good fortune, Teller of Penn & Teller, who discusses here whether President Trump could cancel the November election. Penn and Teller, as most everyone knows, are the thinking person's magicians, or I think I should say performers, because for over 40 years together, they've insisted on reminding us there's no such thing as magic, only then to proceed to dazzle with their great chops and brilliant reconceptions of traditional magician's tricks. Teller, as everyone knows, is the silent partner in the act, so we are especially honored that he's agreed to break his silence to school us on this topic that is now in the headlines and taking on huge practical importance. Can Trump cancel the November election? Hmm. As the coronavirus spreads, several states have postponed their primary elections. But if the virus is still prevalent in the fall or returns after the summer, can the president cancel or postpone the federal elections? No, the president cannot directly cancel the elections. The Constitution requires direct election of representatives and senators, 
and states that Congress sets the time and place and manner of congressional elections. Federal law sets the congressional elections on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. This year, it's November 3rd. Only Congress can change this. The presidential election is slightly different. Remember, the president is chosen by electors. The Constitution requires only that each appoints electors in such a manner that the state legislature determines. For the last 150 years, every state has appointed its electors by holding an election. Federal law says this appointment happens on the same day as congressional elections. So, only Congress can change the date of congressional elections, and only the state legislatures can change the manner of selecting electors. But, what if it becomes impossible to hold the election on November 3rd? Could Trump continue to be president then? No. The 20th Amendment states that the terms of president and vice president end at noon on January 20th. At 12.01, January 20th, 2021, the current president and vice president's terms end, and individuals elected this year, even if that's Trump and Pence, begin their term. On January 3rd, 2021, the new Congress is sworn in. In the unlikely event that no state holds a federal election, there will be no representatives and no new senators sworn in on January 3rd. However, senators hold six-year terms, and 65 will continue their terms of office. 35 are Democrats, or caucus with the Democrats, and 30 are Republicans. The Senate president of this 65-person Senate would be Democratic leader Chuck Schumer, and the president pro tempore would be the longest-serving member, Patrick Leahy. On January 6th, the electoral votes are counted by the president of the Senate. If an individual receives the majority of the electoral votes, he or she is elected. If no one receives a majority of the electoral votes, the House of Representatives picks the president from among the top three electoral vote-getters, and the Senate picks the vice president from among the top two electoral vote-getters. Since no state held a presidential election, no candidate would receive any electoral votes. There would be no names for the House and Senate to choose from, nor any representatives to vote. Without a qualifying president or vice president-elect, the Constitution directs Congress to determine the president. The Presidential Succession Act directs that the Speaker of the House shall become president. If there is no Speaker of the House, which there couldn't be since there would be no representatives, then the presidency devolves to President pro tempore of the Senate. Our scenario would therefore result in the first term of President Patrick Leahy. For Talking Feds, I'm Teller of Penn & Teller. Thank you very much, Teller, for explaining to us once again. We'll hope we can absorb it fully this time and no need for a third seminar, whether Trump can try to cancel the election. We have time for one more issue, and I'd like to talk about the testimony of the Attorney General in the House Judiciary Committee. It was the first time in either of his tenures he did not get a warm welcome. Out of the box, the chair told him that he'd endangered Americans and violated their constitutional rights. I guess the first question is the tongue lashing that he got and some really good lines of questioning from Congressman Raskin and maybe Swalwell and Jayapal. Does it add up to anything or was it pretty clear at the end of the day there's no real check on the attorney general between now and November? 
Well, I think we laid down the law that we were not going to let him get away with anything. We were going to hold him up to public exposure and ridicule for acting like a partisan sycophant and running dog for the president instead of like the lawyer for the American people in the United States. And we called him on everything. I mean, we called him on Michael Flynn. We called him on the Roger Stone pardon. We called him out for the obscene assault on 2,000 nonviolent protesters in Lafayette Square, where he violated every one of six rights contained in the First Amendment. Yeah, you had a really great back and forth, let me say. Though, let me also ask, what strategy did you have going in, and would you have done anything different now in retrospect? Because, you know, your exchange is a good example, Congressman. You mainly made points for people rather than trying to pin him with questions. Did you Had you concluded that that's really the best one can hope for, and do you think you were right? Well, this whole five-minute thing is a real <laughs> inscrutable mystery. <laughs> yeah. There are different ways of thinking about it. And, and you've got to figure out in any particular context, are you going in to try to get information? And these people give no information. Are we going in to try to beat him in a debate? I don't think so, because he's a, a clever debater with an essentially fascistic soul and mind and heart. So my decision, and, and we all tried to work together. Oh, is that right? You carved it up, the different Yeah, topics. we sort of got into the habit of that during the impeachment so that everything is covered and that you probably noticed that one person's questions kind of led to the next person's questions, like mine kind of bled into Pramila Jayapal. I was assigned the part, and I was happy to take this part, of looking at the way that Attorney General Barr has helped to block COVID-19 response and block the development of a national plan and how when extremist right-wing protesters shut down the legislature in Michigan and called for the life of exacted death threats against Governor Whitmer, that instead of going in to beat up the protesters the way that he did in Lafayette Square, he sent lawyers in to join their case against the public health orders. And then, so I was really going after his attempt to blockade public health orders and bring down what you know the governors of Virginia and Michigan had been doing. So, I mean, in my five minutes, I, I wanted to associate him with the COVID-19 nightmare, and he really didn't like it. I take credit only for drawing first blood and irritating him so that he would really begin to talk about what he felt. And I thought that the, the, the next questioner, Pramila Jayapal, did a fantastic job of nailing him on the demolition of people's civil rights and civil liberties. She really cooked him. Yeah, <sighs> man, she was so impressed. I'm starting to get angry. <laughs> you know, yeah, so what did you guys, EJ and Rick, think? It's true there were occasional flashes where you could see people got under his skin. He was generally so sort of phlegmatic and soft-spoken, but he he broke a few times. I don't know what it exactly adds up to besides a very unpleasant five hours for Bill Barr, though. I think for me, the most important words in that hearing were meat and potatoes. If you remember that moment when he was trying to defend the outrageous miscarriage of justice in favor of Roger Stone, the political interference in the Roger Stone case, and it was trying to say that the crimes that Stone was accused of, the crimes that he was accused of were not serious. I mean, this is a guy who seemed to be a go-between with the Russians against it to spread disinformation, and these aren't serious. But these are somehow sophisticated crimes, whereas meat and potatoes crimes, now those are the crimes 
that we should worry about. And what it really sounded like is uh, the kinds of crimes committed by people of color or lower income people or traditional crimes, those are the crimes we go after. But if you're wearing a suit and tie, uh, those crimes really are just exotic crimes uh, that we shouldn't pay attention to. It reminded me of that great old Woody Guthrie line, some rob you with a six gun and some with a fountain pen. If you rob somebody with a six gun, that's a crime. And if you rob somebody with a fountain pen, forget about it. We only go after meat and potatoes. And I thought that was very revealing. And also his real inability to answer the question, why are these protesters in Portland threats that are worthy of federal intervention, but guys who are pro-Trump who go into the Michigan legislature carrying guns, uh, we shouldn't have to worry about those people. I think she really, as Congresswoman Jayapal, really got him on that. Yeah. And I do think there's one thing about Bill Barr. He relies on a sort of protective camouflage of looking and sounding like a gray man, Washington apparatchik and delivering things in a kind of a dull procedural way. He's the most dangerous man in the country, in my view. And he has the most reckless and profound disregard for anything except his extraordinarily expansive view of the executive powers of the president. And so I think there's a a certain degree of pressure that he felt which was unusual, and and Congressman Raskin and and Congresswoman Jayapal and others started to rattle him a little bit. And I thought it was very worthwhile. This isn't an establishment guy who will take care of the Justice Department. This is a naked partisan who's going to use the Justice Department in any way necessary. And I agree with Rick. I think he is a it's genuinely scary to think of what he might do with the Justice Department between now and Election Day. I mean, Barr confiscated the Mueller report and then he deliberately misstated the the contents of it repeatedly prompting not one, but two letters from Mueller saying, what in the hell are you doing? You're lying to the people, but he's just belligerent and just barrels right through. What is your take on this, by the way? I, I mean, he repeated in the hearing this rosy scenario of, oh, I just, I could have been a grandpa having fun with my grandchildren. I didn't need any of this, etc. And he comes in and obviously he is willing to completely trash what had been a pretty fine reputation. He's going to go down as, you know, John Mitchell. That's quite a sort of self-immolation that you don't normally see in people in public life. My read is that if you look at that Notre Dame speech and some of the other speeches he's given, he is like a lot of socially conservative Trump supporters who believe that the culture is being led down some dangerous hellish path by liberals and that owning the libs and defeating the libs is worth every bit of the tarnishing of his reputation and it's worth supporting Donald Trump for. And I think it's a shame. I think it's terrible for the country, but I think that is the choice he's made. I'm curious what Rick thinks as somebody who knows his own party better than I do. I think we're in a spiral right now. In some ways, there was always going to be this breaking point with both political parties in the in the immediate future, where this nationalism on the GOP side was going to cause these stresses and this rising authoritarian strain that embodied by a guy like Barr was going to eventually. I mean, look, 
Bill Barr is to the right of Dick Cheney on executive power. Let that sink in for a second. And as a guy who used to work for Dick Cheney, I can tell you, Bill Barr is to the right of Dick Cheney on executive power, which is kind of a strange moment in our culture. But that's one of the things that led to Trump, this idea that in the in the minds of some Republicans, that you had to have an executive who was so overwhelmingly powerful and so overwhelmingly equipped to do whatever he could not accomplish legislatively or judicially, that you had to make those compromises. And I think that is an incredibly dangerous place for any party to be. Unless, of course, the president is Barack Obama, in which case executive orders on anything, including DACA, are somehow a vast overreach of executive power. Yeah. Well, and look, I, as a conservative, I think that we ought to use the process the founders intended, which is that the legislature would set the law and the courts would interpret said law and the executive would implement said law. I said this at the time. I think I wrote about this during DACA. I said, you know, Democrats are gleeful about this. This will come back to bite them someday. And I don't know who or when, but it will come back to bite them. And it did. And and this is why abuse of power is, is a danger. I, I salute all the work you're doing right now. I don't think DACA, you know, President Bush also had executive orders on immigrants that allowed illegalized or quasi-legalized the situation of a lot of immigrants. Nothing about DACA that Obama did compares to some of these abuses, period. Oh, no, I'm not even saying it was a comparable. Yeah, no. Neither did it open the door for anything that Trump has been doing on immigration, which has been completely lawless. And that, that's that he, he's not even bothering with executive orders on a lot of the immigration stuff. He's just using command and control. But Rick's point, though, about the executive branch authoritarianism of the Republican Party is really important because this is what has defined Scalia going back to Rehnquist. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's a really powerful impulse there to centralize as much power as possible for a war-making, national security state, the whole thing. And they viewed Obama as a blip. That was one of the reasons they wanted to just illegitimate and invalidate his whole administration because they couldn't celebrate and exalt executive power yeah. under him. You know, And the same reason they impeached Bill Clinton and had to drive him out. But the, the standard course is this whole thing about how presidential power is primary and shouldn't be questioned. I mean, there was a moment when Barr and I were really about to get into it. I don't know if you picked it up, but he said, well, for someone who thinks thinks that there's executive power overreach you and then he didn't complete yeah. a <laughs> sentence like he didn't want to go there because I've been writing about this and about kind of what you were suggesting, Rick, which is we need a reassertion of the basic original constitutional position, which is that Congress is in Article One for a reason. It is the predominant and primary lawmaking branch of government. And the president's job is to be the commander in chief, not of the government or the country, but commander in chief of the army and navy and the militias when called up into actual service. And then otherwise, the core of the job is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, <laughs> you know, and we've turned it it's so upside down where we've got a king and, and Trump goes around uncorrected and undoubtedly egged on by Barr saying, and I've got something called Article 2, which allows me to do whatever I want. And Barr, and Barr defends that. And I, I think actually a uh, corollary here, it's not just executive power, but a kind of fear and loathing of the legislature. And, you know, it's telling uh, Rehnquist and Scalia had this job that was obscure to so many, but now we, we know the importance of it. They head of the Office of Legal Counsel, and that's how Barr came to prominence as well. I do want to just underscore something EJ said, because I do think it's a part of the puzzle, and it's a little bit 
of a surprise bar, sometimes seems an apparatchik or a kind of sophisticated actor. He can tell a joke, he has a sense of humor, but he really does have this side that the Notre Dame speech expressed. I used to work for him as you used to work for Cheney, and I'll tell a quick story. It's not talking out of school, which I wouldn't do anyway but he was doing whatever he was doing in 91, all these things. And then there was the publication of the bombshell news that Woody Allen was taking up with his stepdaughter. And he said, to justify it, something that had nothing to do with anything in the Department of Justice, the heart wants what the heart the wants. The heart wants. And those seven words just wigged Barr out and seemed to exemplify a whole kind of Sodom and Gomorrah aspect since the 60s of society. And he wrote a big speech about it. And that that is really part of where he comes from. But explain this to me, and maybe can I just ask EJ, because he might be able to put this together. How do you square that kind of ferocious, religious, fundamentalism, authoritarianism with the marriage with Donald Trump, who is the most licentious and predatory and sexually abusive and trespassing president you can imagine? He's a scoundrel, but he's their he's scoundrel. Yeah. Right. But a lot of evangelicals have talked about Cyrus of Persia. He's not really one of us. But he's on our side, and we have reached such a crisis point. Uh, you know, the pastor of the First Baptist Church down in Dallas talked about this, that they were looking for a strong hand to push back against all of this corruption, this moral corruption that they perceive in the society. So they will tolerate a lot of behavior from Trump because they believe that pushing back against these cultural forces that they oppose and by the way, a lot of these voters started voting to the right and for Republicans, starting with civil rights. That's also a piece of this story. But the moral side, they can just justify it because Trump has the right enemies in their view. Well, but just forgive the thought then. I mean, it, it, it leads to the conclusion that the people who describe themselves as the religious movement or the religious right in America are interested much less in virtue or religious principles than they are in power. Well, there's a fascinating poll. I think it was either Pew or PRI. I think it was PRI where the question was, does a president's personal behavior have a big effect on what kind of president he is. It was better worded than that, obviously. Before Trump showed up, evangelicals, white evangelicals, overwhelmingly said, yes, a president's personal behavior really mattered. After Trump showed up, the numbers flipped the other way. Trump has created, alas, uh, this corruption, I think, of an attitude toward the presidency. You know, in the first instance, they were thinking about Clinton. But I'm talking about Trump's public behavior. Look at the assault on Lafayette Square. I mean, the, the Episcopal Bishop of Washington denounced it. The Catholic Bishop of Washington denounced it. The president of the Episcopalian Church nationally denounced it. But you still have the right-wing religion, and they just turn a blind eye to the whole thing. Well, I, I can tell you, in, in 2015 and 16, we did tons of focus groups with, with Republican voters trying to figure out a pathway to get them off of Trump. And we kept coming back to these evangelical voters who would say, well, I know he's a sinner, but he's going to nominate judges. And you cannot underestimate the judicial fetishism of the GOP. And I will tell you, and I've told everybody this, Trump's prospects in this race are contingent on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's continued good health. And I, I hate saying it that way. It sounds really cold. But if this becomes a Supreme Court referendum fight, Republicans will be flocking back to him because that strain of judicial fetishism is so unbelievably powerful. 
inside the, the party today. Of all the ominous and terrifying thoughts that have been expressed today, I think we end with that one and nothing is nothing. Is right. Sunshine and rainbows. All right. We have just a couple minutes left for our final feature. As Talking Feds listeners know, five words or fewer, where we take a question from a listener and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. Today's question is from Charlie Homans, who asks... Will the Durham report be delivered before the election? I say yes. Yes, fart in a hurricane. Perfect. Five words. It will be pure propaganda. Mm -hmm. Five words again. Unfortunately, yes. This has been a great conversation. Thank you very much to E.J. Dion, Rick Wilson, and Congressman Jamie Raskin. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web talkingfeds.com where we have full episode transcripts and you can look for our latest offerings on patreon at patreon.com slash talkingfeds for ad free versions of our regular episodes but also discussions and even full episodes about special topics exclusively for supporters so there's really a wealth of great stuff there you can go look at it to see what they are and then decide if you'd like to subscribe Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segment. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett and Rebecca Lopatin. Our editor is Justin Wright. David Lieberman and Rosie Don Griffin are contributing writers. Production assistance by Ayo Osabamiro and Sam Trachtenberg. Our consulting producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Special thanks to Dan Droz for his great help on design and marketing. And of course, thanks very much to Teller for the second time for pouring water on the president's ideas about monkeying with the election. Finally, our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.